Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gathering Ground, a podcast where with each new episode, special guest and I explore what it looks like to thrive in the nonprofit and foundation landscape. I'm Mary Morton, president of Morton Group LLC. We're a national consulting firm that operates in Chicago and works with clients from coast to coast and everywhere in between. You can find out more about our work at mortongroup.com. That's www.mortongroup.com. This time on the podcast, I am truly excited and honored and humbled to be welcoming back two guests who were last on Gathering Ground for episode nine in November of 2019. And at that time, they gave us a little insight to their work and upbringing. On this podcast, they will talk a little bit about what life has been like in the last year, what they've learned, what they know for sure, how they're going to think about their lives and their work moving forward. This is a conversation that you don't want to miss. I'm so excited to bring back for what we're calling a fireside chat, Angelique Power and Tracy Hall. Welcome back. It has been over a year and a half since you were here last, 2019. Welcome back. Thank you. Can I just start by saying how beautiful you both look? We can see each other and you just look so gorgeous, both of you. And the last time we were together, Tracy and I went and had dinner before and we walked the streets and then we got into the space and we all sat together in that room and were able to feed off each other's energy and we laughed and we had deep talk. And so it's just lovely to be even in this Zoom space with you all again. And it is so lovely to see both of you. It is like all this warmth, particularly since I'm not sure, where, where are you, Tracy? I am coming from Southern California. So I'm in my brother and sister-in-law's backyard. And this is very sort of out of character for me because I'm, you know, always thinking like I have to be like at a desk or in an office somewhere. And this is the first time in a year. The last time I was in LA, I was burying my aunt. And I just thought for this conversation, I'm going to do something that feels really liberatory and actually sit in the backyard and enjoy a little bit of sun. So I'm doing this for my aunt Irma. She, this is something that she would do. It's very much, it's very much her about, you know, doing something that feels good and that feels healing. Well, here's to Aunt Irma. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we have to do. I'm also not sitting at my desk. I'm sitting at the couch in my office and I'm in front of this National Public Housing Museum um, poster that they sent donors. We are the ones we've been waiting for, uh, you know, from a June Jordan poem. And I, I, you know, I switched that out with the um, poster from my film, Woke of Black. Depends on who I'm talking to. You know, what message is needed? Well, I actually, I have one of those June Jordan pieces that Jen De Los Reyes did um, in my office. It's on my window over here. Nice. Um, but I, I so relate to that quote. And, and I am in my home office surrounded by my ancestors watching on and listening in to our conversation. Wonderful. I love that. That is a wonderful way to start and to sort of set the context for today's conversation, which is um, really to, you know, let's think about last year and all that we've learned and what are you hearing about this year and how you're working with your staff? I mean, these are some of the questions that we're getting a lot of. And of course, Tracy, you are not in the same position that you were when we spoke to you last. Um, you were at the Joyce Foundation and now 
You're the executive director of the American Library Association, which is, has it even been a year? Has it been a year yet? Yes, yes, okay. I started February 25th. Okay, wow. So not much longer than a year, but it's been a year. Right. And so yes. you really walked into your role and then walked right into COVID-19. Right, right. No, absolutely. I, um, and I have to say that, I, you know, the ambient sounds of Southern California are, are all around, birds, traffic, all of that. So I, I just want to say that's my soundscape, but you're exactly right. So I started um, the week that I, I was announced that I was um, going to be the 10th executive director of the American Library Association, 57,000 members, over 200 staff, four different locations, um, nearly 150 years old. The same week that it was announced that I would be um, taking on this new role, my aunt died. And then shortly after I took on the, the role, by my second week, I think in the position, um, the coronavirus pandemic had been declared. And so how I have learned to navigate this role has really been, I think, bookended by, um, I think, this but you know, by conditions that really require a certain amount of a certain amount of vision and and focus, but also to understanding what it means to care for oneself, to care for others, and how that has to be resident um, in any type of leadership sort of positioning. And so it's been really a journey, and and one that's been been very humbling. But I cannot ever remembering learning so much so quickly and having the stakes be as high as they've been in a pandemic where public access to public health, access to um, educational persistence and access to employment have all been predicated on access to information and digital access. So it's almost like the work of the Library Association, which is a leader, especially for lower income uh, um, people in providing that access, is it's sort of like the, this entire time has has pushed, I think, the entire association into a level of, of leadership and vision that um, I think is I can't imagine a time uh, that uh, where where so much was riding on decision making and and on our ability to persevere. Absolutely, wow! I I didn't real yeah I don't think I realized that was the the way the events sort of lined up for you in terms of starting a new new position. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. So let's talk a little to you, Angelique. You are in what year at the Field Foundation? It's been five years. I can't believe that either. <laughs> Isn't that wild? It's been it's five years. Just unbelievable and lots of changes. What would you say are some of the things in, at this five-year mark that you are, you are most proud of or what's some of the learning that you've done? Yeah, you know, when I started, um, it was the summer of 2016 and saying that you want to center racial equity and do anti-racist work in philanthropy felt risky and dangerous. Um, I know, you know, that I was five months into the job when we did our first racial justice training with board and staff. And it was one month after the last presidential election. I didn't know my board as well as I do now. It is a group of the unusual suspects around the table for racial justice. Um, and, you know, I joked with my husband that morning, like, 
it was a good run at field, but uh, I'm going to go into this training and then we'll see what other jobs are out there. You know, like it felt like a risk, you know, um, and in many ways, I feel like we were training up for the moment that we're in now. Um, we were able to get the sort of um, exercise, the muscular exercise of racial justice, um, of meta-reflection, of constantly looking at what you're doing and designing and who's designing it and who is it harming and who is it helping and um, you know how do we stop this idea that we are the sort of, um, you know, that people are beneficiaries of our benevolence as opposed to like, they are the designers of their own destiny. That takes a lot. That's a daily activity of shifting that perspective. Um, and so this year when the world or many others, not you all, but others started to awaken to the need to center racial justice, um, many people came to us, come to us for help in how to do this. And I feel like because of these last five years, because of um, giving things a try and making mistakes and making small progress and knowing that it's, you know, the road ahead is long and arduous, we're able to help people take this moment of pageantry, frankly, um, and start to potentially operationalize changes that will affect a generation. What we do this year will affect the next generation. And so, um, you know, at Field, we've changed how we fund, we've changed who we fund, we've changed our approach to investments, we've changed our metrics. You know, we ask in our, our main metrics are about ourselves. We ask like, how do we build trust through our grant making? We ask, how do we protect communities from ourselves? You know, meaning like unbridled investment to communities of color if you don't change racist inequitable policies is just gonna drive people out. So how do you work across sector? How do you work arm in arm? How do you understand who the visionaries are? Um, and also how do you not believe your own hype, which is like a big piece of being in philanthropy. Like you get high on your own supply. You think you're amazing and you think you have all the answers. And so how do you actually stay focused on who the real visionaries are? And, and that takes work. So five years into it, some progress, long way to go. Oh, that. I love everything you said, and it just dovetails so nicely with some of the very things we say when we're working with clients around, you know, racial equity work, this idea that we often say we move at the speed of trust. We have to have a partnership with you to do this work. Um, that's very important. And that it is iterative. It's not linear, which, you know, people want it to be just like this. And it's, that's not because we're human beings and that's not how the work is going to happen. And so, um, really fighting back against white supremacy culture and naming it in a way that we have not done before. To your point in 2016 is when we saw this increased interest in equity work. And then again, we saw another um, wave when George Floyd was, was uh, murdered. And I just wanna acknowledge that we are sitting here uh, while the closing arguments have either just concluded or are in progress in Minneapolis today uh, as well as we've had a number of mass shootings that have happened in the last several weeks. And apparently 
think I was reading on the new cover of the New York Times yesterday that 64 people have been shot during the time of Chauvin's trial and half of them have been uh, BIPOC. Um, and I just wanna acknowledge that that is the space we're sitting in while trying to do this other work. It's all connected as we know, um, yet it in many cases really calls for some different strategies right on how we address it. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, you, you talked about the muscle, right? And I often will say to folks that we want you to really get used to using the muscle of discomfort in this work. That it's, it's not gonna be easy. Um, and that we also have to call on BIPOC to address our own internalized racism. <laughs> you know, how many times has someone said, well, if we just are gonna have to have a person of color do that work because that means it's, we got it, it's all done not acknowledging that we have taken in some of that behavior. There's no way around it because we're socialized that way. And to really be in a place where we can talk about internalized racism as well, that, that yeah. becomes so important. I mean, you can't, you can't hear me snapping <laughs> because I was mute, muted, but I am snapping along to what you're saying. And, you know, I do say this, that I think these anti-racism trainings are so important for people who've come to be called white, like absolutely. And um, yet I think it's more important for us, for folks of color, because we have internalized all of those same messages. Absolutely. And, you know, many of us who are in these positions of power, we are there because there's multiple systems of privilege working on our behalf. Right. And so that sort of, um, you know, disillusionment that, that we are able to speak on behalf of communities that we aren't a part of, you know, and actually leads to more harm. And so a lot of justification of status quo happens because of uninformed BIPOC people who are in these spaces. I hate to say it, but you know. I am snapping and I hope everyone can hear it, yes. We yes. have our work to do. We have our work to do. And so I, I just yeah. agree. Yeah, all of us have work to do. And um, I know there are times when I'm you know, talking to a, a client about, you know, a client partner about a search and they're very clear that it must be this person. And I keep saying, you know, are, are you sure you're ready for that when this is going to be the first time a person of color has been in this role? And again, is it beyond the optics? Is the organization ready? I, I say the same thing when we're talking to boards, right, Who've, who really are for the first time bringing in underrepresented voices um, who often, um, what, what we know is if you, if you look different, However, you think exactly the same is really what the board is asking for. And again, have they done their work around what it means to have in having folks who are underrepresented and have been marginalized and these different voices? All right, so that's our that's that's what we're working with. That's um, that's how you know we've come to this work, uh, particularly today uh, in late April. Tracy, as you have, how did you get to know your your team and your staff virtually? What what kinds of things did you put into place? Because that's, I mean, we've had other folks, of course we've done about 10 or 12 placements in, in during uh, COVID. I'm just curious, what strategies did you employ for that? Yeah, so maybe before I answer that question, I just want to underscore something that I think both of you are speaking to Mary and Angelique. And I think that's this idea of moving past um, this sort of performative aspect of anti-racism or um, the performative aspect of the equity, diversity, and inclusion industrial complex. 
I think is really important because it, um, it at this particular point, in, in this year, 2021, and in this place, the United States of America, as Sonia Sanchez always kind of locates um, where we are, we are still in this very, in this performative place or in this place where the optics mean everything or where at the height of, um, at the height of, I think, um, our sort of uh, collective outrage around George Floyd's um, murder, um, the, you know, this idea was almost to kind of, uh, you know, brand um, the outrage so that it looked a particular type of way so that it had a label and that it could be televised or it could be, um, you know, it could, it could become a meme in social media. And I, and I have to say that I, I don't know that um, we have moved terribly past that because what I haven't seen necessarily is that I haven't seen the money move in, in the ways that I would like to see it move. And I haven't seen other than saying, you know, well, you know, we will maybe, you know, have a leader who looks a particular way. I don't know that, you know, I'm seeing folks say, I really want to interrogate um, the very ground on which my institution was founded. And I think that we have to do that. And I and I and I have to say that actually coming to so this wasn't my first go around at the um, American Library Association. I came to Chicago in 2003 to head the Office for Diversity at the American Library Association. And I like to think that the association knew somewhat what it was getting when it it, it decided to um, appoint me as um, executive director. But one thing that I've been relentless about is championing voices, whether it's on our board or um, on our staff and in our membership that really insist on justice. And so the first time that I, I actually did my sort of virtual sort of uh, introduction to the um, association um, in this role, I, 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 I stated, let our legacy be justice. As we approach our 150 years, let our legacy be justice in some, in deed, in people, in how we fund libraries. Let's interrupt this idea, right? That um, this conversation is, is one that is um, uh, just a, 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 a narrative or an idea. And let's think about how we fund libraries and, and let's think about generational wealth and the fact that heads of households are the predictor of generation wealth, of generational wealth, and, and let's interrupt the information um, disparities um, that almost in some ways circumscribe and punctuate poverty, right? Because, um, and also let's connect this, as I said then, I'll, I'll repeat, Let's connect, um, let's connect this moment in talking about information and knowledge and all of those other kinds of things that are predictors of economic um, access. Let us connect this to compulsory illiteracy, to the idea that across the world, almost anyone or any group that has been historically and, and systemically and systematically oppressed has been denied um, the agency when it comes to literacy um, and, and the application thereof. So when, um, so when Angelique is talking about, um, you know, doing board work or when you, Mary, are talking about, are you really, re really ready to be healed, right? Because that's Tony K. Bambara's question in the heat, you know, and that, 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 becomes, that becomes a question. That becomes actually the question of, um, of, of, of many tropes within, I think, Black liberation texts, especially women. Are you ready to be healed? And if you're really ready to be healed, it's going to cost you. 
And so I think those were the questions, you know, so when I was, um, when I was first addressing my staff or thinking about, um, you know, team building and that, we really had to come through questions of, um, I remember one of my, a, a few of my staff members who were younger asking, you know, can we post Black, uh, Black Lives Matter on our website, you know, for the American Library Association? I said, yes, we can tattoo it. We can, we can, we can wear that around our necks, but are we ready? Because when, because I've known that Black Lives Matter since 1968, right? Um, that's a year of my birth, but that's also a year where I think the world had to kind of come to an understanding that Black Lives Matter in, in, in some and indeed. But I said, do you know when I'll be saying Black Lives Matter? They all waited. I said, when we're hiring, because if we look at librarianship and when we even look at the association and we see that in librarianship still to this day, far less than 20% of, um, of the field is made up of people of color, BIPOC um, communities, we know that we aren't tapping our full genius pool. And when we think about libraries information uh, services, our, the, our reason for being is the curation of intellectual and cultural production, the preservation and the dissemination thereof. So when we think about the fact that we are dangerously out of step, just as museums have been, just as the art community has been, we really uh, are testing our validity. We are, we're actually, I think, jeopardizing our validity. So, so I actually got a chance to sort of in this role, so I've been at the American Library Association and I, I before and, and some of the stalwarts are still there. Some of our great leaders um, in the profession and on the staff are still there, but many are new. But it was through um, these questions, navigating these questions and the hard truths behind them or, or the kind of community that we want to create that I really got a chance, I think, to sort of um, to test whether or not the field was ready, especially ready to wear my black face. Right. Because because that's what you know, and I hope we can talk about that, because when you know, and I've said this before, I hope this is controversial, but I remember back in the day when I used to, you know, like get assigned a team, I would say to my team, I, I, I would sometimes say, OK, so now you're going to see um, you're going to see what race, racism and, and what white privilege look like up close and personal. Because some of that is going to be um, is going to happen in the microaggressions and the micro inequities that will happen because I'm the leader of this team, and uh, and I'd love to hear you, Angelique and Mary, talk about that. And, and that means in terms of how we're funded, that I can have a, an idea and have had it for 15 years. But if I go to a funder, listen, I, and and I want people to see we're having church at this moment. Mary has just raised the testimony. Because when I go and ask for funding, people want to ask me 15 and 16 different ways how I know what I know when I know it and how did I find it out. But if they hear the idea from somebody who's not of that community, then it's novel and that person is saving the world. And I just want to put my name on that. Tracy D. Hall. I said that because that is what's real. So and that's the drag, right? That's the drag effect of when people say what they want, but they're really not ready for it. Well, I don't where, where do we even what do we even say to that, Tracy? Angelique, you go, I mean, yes, yes, I was raising yes. my hand during many yes, snapping, snapping. Yes. Um, you know, first I just want to reiterate Tracy D. Hall, I mean, I'm writing quotes. <laughs> you left and right. So let our legacy be just. Let our legacy be just. 
Oh. Let our legacy be justice, Tracy D. Hall. Oh my God. Amen. Um, you know, I think I, I, <laughs> I talk about the elegant resistance to, you know, the anti-racism work. And that is really perfected in philanthropy, right? It's like exactly what you described. It comes as an academic antiseptic approach to issues that our communities, we actually have table stakes in the outcome. So who are the people in power, right? So that's why, that's why we talk about boards. And I wish everybody could see what is happening here. <laughs> we are just falling out with each other. We are just, you know. Uh, so that's why I talk about the power analysis that's necessary inside of any space that you're in. Like who, where, where is the, you know, where are the power lines? Who's making these decisions? Who's setting the parameters of um, how money moves, of who gets to be validated, of whose voice is important? What is the normative conversation? There is no neutral table. Nothing is neutral. And so when it is disguised as, you know, academic benevolence, mm -hmm. then you should, your spidey sense should tingle and say, there's something really off. Um, but the way that I think any of us have been dismissed, you know, have been undermined, have been um, shown the door, have been left out of the conversation, have been allowed in the conversation and then had our language used as window dressing on something that it is not about. I mean, that is my entire experience in philanthropy. And so that's why I think, you know, I, and I've said this before, I don't even know if like racial equity in philanthropy is an oxymoron or not. I don't know if it's possible. It is a group of people who are making decisions, who have power and resources, who are making decisions on behalf of others. So can you really achieve justice in that paradigm? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, I think to your point, Tracy, like the origins of money, being in the business of poverty, you know, the fact that, that foundations, we just routed this op-ed, which is a whole other bottle of wine, but I do want to talk about that. <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, there was, I posted it on LinkedIn and someone made this comment, which I thought was so thoughtful and said, foundations are like icebergs. And so what peaks out is like five, that 5%, but really what's underneath, that's the soul. Right. Of what's the, the waterline. That's right. That is really like telling about, and there is no need to be public about that. That is all behind closed doors. And so in routing the letter, you know, those who signed, those who refused to sign, those can who you, can you Can I just stop you for a second? Can you give some context so people will yes. know? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, it's your fault and it's your fault. It's two of you. I just, you know, I just want to, you know, go deep. I really do want to open a bottle of wine right now. It's like, I know. Okay, let me give context. So. <laughs> You know, a big part of this year, and I'm going to give context to this year. Okay. One of the things that happened while we went into our homes to work and started to isolate away from each other was this longing to connect. And so what I found in this last year is that the walls of Field Foundation have fallen away. 
And whether it's me or anyone on my staff, we have become part of this greater ensemble that are working toward justice and the things that we care about. And so one piece of it was this, you know, a call that happened in October with a bunch of us who are foundation trustees. I'm a trustee at Field Foundation and at Julian Grace. It was other black trustees who work in investment and we were just sharing some of the conversations that we've been having. And we decided that we would create a letter that actually details out concrete ways to bring racial equity into the endowment space. And then we routed the letter for folks to sign, not just the presidents, because many presidents do agree with this, but it's the boards that really, and investment committees that have such a power. And so we wanted to have trustees sign on to these recommendations. And we wanted to call out things like, there is a serious trope, a racist trope that goes around every time you talk about send, putting money in investment funds owned by folks of color which is that you are sacrificing your returns and that then you can't do grant making anymore and that it's gonna impact the community. And so we had to call that out and had to call out ways that in an asset allocation study, there is room, not just in certain asset groups, but in all asset groups to really do it and concrete ways to get there. So we did an op-ed, it came out a couple of weeks ago. It, it provides some detail, not all, there's so much more that can be talked about. But what I was saying is that the real work happened once we started routing the letter because investment committees were looking at it. They were either saying, we're gonna sign on, we don't do this, we should. They refused to sign on. They didn't respond. They wanted to rewrite it, to sort of uh, dial it back and make it less, Dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They wanted to add in something else. And, and this is a positive. We had started with just having black trustees sign it. Um, resoundingly, people came back from the ones that did sign on and 12 foundations signed on and 31 trustees signed on. They said, can we have folks that aren't black sign on? Because my investment chair is a white man and he wants to sign on to this or a Latina woman. And so we were like, yes. And where we landed is just the beginning of trying to have this conversation and then have other work that can actually create accountability. But, um, you know, whether you said yes, no, refused, whatever, you saw it, you saw the demand, and you felt a pressure to behave differently in a hidden space. So that is an enorm enormously important. Can you say where it was published, where people can find it? We want to make it's sure. It's in Cranes. It's in, in chicagobusiness.com. Um, if you look up job one uh, for local philanthropies, diversify endowments, uh, you will find it. Excellent. No, and, and to your point, something we often say in workshops is the real work begins after this workshop. It's not yeah. in this session. What are you going to do with all this information? To your point of You've now been apprised of this situation. You've had to have a conversation about it. What are you gonna do about it? And if you sign on the letter or you don't sign on the letter, something has to be done. And I guarantee you inside of every foundation, there are people who've been pushing for this mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and have met that elegant resistance that we were talking about because it's real in the investment space, it is real. And that academic piece, it's coupled with these sort of measurements and metrics around like capitalist structures that that force is powerful. 
And so hopefully we equipped warriors inside of these spaces to keep going with their work too. Yeah, that I, I wanna just applaud that work um, because I think that you're exactly right. What this does is it validates um, people who have been saying this all along. And, and, and at uh, the American Library Association, we were really on a similar track. Um, we had a few steps to do beforehand, but in sort of understanding, we have like something, uh, something like 120,000 libraries, you know, of all types, you know, in the country. And, and at a time where they were really uh, forced, I think, to reckon with the sort of gaps in their communities, they were relying on the association. So this is a time where we really need to be generating revenue. We really need to be thinking about what return on impact is going to look like. But it also forced us to look at our endowment and, and, and to think about how do we grow that endowment. So a couple of things were happening. One is that I think right at the time that we were talking about by, by last June, the association really felt, our board especially felt that we really needed to apologize um, for any sort of complicity that librarianship in general or the association in particular had had in, in um, preserving racist structures. So we needed to apologize and atone for our own racism. And, and then the second step after that was to begin to commit in, in very specific and concrete ways um, in, in terms of really uh, making good on that atonement. What fruit would that apology bear, right? As the poet Christopher O'Keeble says, how many promises ever fill a basket? And he's saying this in the midst of the Biafran war where people are starving. And I always think about that. So what we needed to do was to say how we're gonna fill, fill the basket. So the association did two things. In, in the light where information is money, um, the association said, we believe that access to the internet should unequivocally be free, unequivocally be free, that it should be free and it should be declared a human right. And the association and its council did that. But then the second thing was to begin thinking about um, how we manage our money and to commit to having even more of our fund. Our overall fund is actually managed by a, a person of color but we wanted to have more of our money um, uh, uh, organized and, and sort of committed and strategized by a firm that was founded by people of color. And so I think, you know, to, to that degree, Angelique, we are matching that work. And I wanna say that because I believe that unless we talk about people and revenue, then everything else is just an empty promise. It is just an empty promise. And, and, and I have said it, um, you know, before, but whenever I, I hear people sort of self-aggrandizing about the work that they're doing, and I can't see that the money is shifting or that the people who are invited to the table or making decisions or shifting, it's hollow. And, and I, because, you know, the last time, you know, we all kind of got together, I was really sort of navigating what it looks like to, to try to shift institutions from the point of a middle manager. The thing that is humbling to me now is that um, it's how hard it looks like, and Angelique has been doing this. Um, what does it look like to, to say this from the point of view of an executive leader? And how do you make sure that you don't fall into um, sometimes that sort of almost like I, a fear of making a wrong move or as a person of color, fear of moving too fast or fear of saying something that is unpopular? Does that jeopardize um, your, uh, your stability um, as a leader? And those are real questions. And I think that what 
I've decided and what I have learned is that if I rock the boat as an executive leader in calling for equity and justice, then may the entire boat capsize because that is not a boat that I want to be driving, that I want to be a passenger on. And I don't want to look at the faces in the water that are looking to me saying, say something, because I know that if I don't say something, then I'm as complicit as whatever, as the systems or the lack thereof that, that left people um, you know, to, to sort of navigate um, water that really most people aren't meant to survive. So I, I just wanted to, to say that because I do look up to Angelique and of course you Mary, because you've been doing this work for such a long time, but, but I, I feel myself continuing to have this conversation with philanthropy, and I know that the urgency that I feel um, in this role at the American Library Association, or that I'm willing to mirror, because certainly I'm not the only one, um, but when I, that I mirror from our staff and our membership, and our, especially our member leaders who are so visionary, the urgency that I feel is because coming from philanthropy, I understand that unless we do something concrete we will continue to entertain ourselves and we will um, be a disservice to others by just prolonging these conversations. Amen. Oh my goodness. Amen. Yes. Yes. That or amazing grace. One of the two. Was right? I mean, Absolutely. Absolutely. Gracious. Yeah. That really kind of sums it up. I mean, that's what has to happen. That's what needs to happen. Uh, that's what we're talking about. And I, and I guess my question is while we've seen, some progress. We know there's a lot more work to do. And I'm wondering if you think people are up for the work. Are people really, do people really understand and just haven't gotten there yet? Or do you think there's still a fundamental uh, lack of understanding about the depthfulness of the work and, and that it can't be this sort of superficial, you know, having a fund that responded to COVID, wonderful. And so now what are you gonna do? What, what are the next steps? Um, and, and just a couple of things I want to respond to that you all have said with regard to being in philanthropy. When I was first coming into philanthropy, I, you know, came in through the Chicago Foundation for Women. Um, it was a board that was set up around with really keeping in mind how to have diverse voices at the table. However, I was one of a few um, women in the room um, who, you know, I was, the, I was the first black woman to be chair of that board. And I can remember being so nervous about that role and having a very uh, well-heeled, um, high-end donor uh, go out to breakfast with me because I, of course, was trying to do all the things before I really became chair of the board. I was chair-elect. I was trying to meet with people, make sure people knew who I was. And we were also starting uh, the leadership councils, which we were the first foundation to have that kind of uh, look at, uh, you know, really trying to say, we have, we fund lots of uh, organizations that serve people of color, but we don't have some of those same people, you know, as donors. And so I can remember going out to breakfast with um, this woman who died recently. And she said, you know, and she said to me, Barry, I'm not really interested in knowing about African-American women and what they're doing. She said this to me, <laughs> okay, I'm getting ready to take over his chair. And she said, you know, I got that letter about the African-American uh, African-American Women's Council. And I thought, I mean, if we need to do this, fine. Not really interested in it. And I, I wasn't quite sure what to do with that. I was stunned that, that somebody would say that to me directly, and particularly since I knew I was getting ready to step into the role as the uh, board, board chair. And 
you know, I continue to do my work and you do your work in a variety of ways. And probably when I became the interim executive director of CFW, that woman wrote me a handwritten note and she won apologized for that and said, I now completely understand why it's important that we are doing this work and that we cannot continue to be essentially, you know, an organization that really doesn't understand the role of people of color and, and just, I mean, it was just this, in fact, I still have the note somewhere uh, because it was one of those moments when I thought, okay, someone, someone got it. It is possible. I mean, I think I couldn't, again, I say this often, I couldn't get out of bed and do some of the work I do every day if I didn't think that people fundamentally have the ability to change, to get it, um, that there is, that, that people are interested in doing the work um, and that people can change. And, and, I, and I have to keep believing that when we know better, we will do better. I, I have to hold on to that because I don't know if I could do any of this work if I didn't. I think that woman um, gave you a gift honestly, because she just said what people think, but don't say. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. She absolutely did. She, one, one thing that I want to ask you all about is, is the cost though, because I get a chance. I'm, you know, like you all, I'm sure I am. I'm asked always to speak to classes or to groups or to groups of women or women of color or, or, or young activists who are really interested in, you know, in, in looking at um, how they can interrogate, you know, these types of, of management roles and that kind of thing. And I, I think about also, on the other hand, when I have presented or, or spoken and, and someone who is in a position of power, especially when it comes to granting money, can say, how can I help? And I've been really frank and said, how you can help is is that I am a black woman leading an organization, and um, it is very likely that I am not going to be able um, or invited to the tables where I can raise as much money as um, my white male predecessors. And what you can do is show that you believe in this work and that you believe in 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 the leadership capacity that you see or that you're talking about and and support and i'm and i'm happy to to say that there have been i've i've said that and i've had you know a response to that that is favorable but i also want to ask you too about the cost because the cost of this work to one's health to one's sense of peace i'm just going to name it if i can just be for real this is violent work. I'm just going to call it what it is. I, it sometimes, there are some times when, and I, you know, and I'm, I don't fancy myself a martyr at all. I'm all about power, but there have been some moments that have been so sobering. There have been some moments that have taken everything that I have that I remember being asked by a group of women of color, younger women, and they asked me at the end, you know, although we admire you and what you have been able to do and what it looks like you might be able to do, we are afraid of the cost and we want to know, is it worth it? And of course, immediately everything in me was like, yes, yes, yes. But I think we have to have this conversation about the cost and we have to name it. And we are not the only generation. We come from generations of, 
of this work and the sacrifice. But I think that in the same time that we are talking about self-care and resilience and self-preservation, if we don't talk about the cost, my fear is that many facile and visionary um, younger leaders are going to opt out of, of this leadership journey. Well, thank you for saying it and putting it on the table. Um, and, you know, I, I talk openly about mental health. I will tell anyone that I have a therapist that I see every other week, you know, and I think it's so important and I think it is a gift. I call it my day spa for the mind when I go in there. I think I am a fascinating book and I get to go deep into myself chapter by chapter with someone who is skilled and is able to find connections I'm not finding, to push back on connections I'm trying desperately to rationalize. And, and I say that because self-care for this work requires unpacking trauma and giving yourself room to feel the different things that you feel. Um, and that we can be, you know, we talked about being a bench for each other in the first gathering ground. And we can do that. And we must do that for each other. But I want to strongly recommend that any of us actually deeply invest in our own mental health because it will be necessary. Um, the other thing is that I think that we are an incredible, like, I think black women in particular, women of color, I think that we operate from abundance out of necessity, right? And so we're going to take all of the things that are coming at us, whether they're microaggressions or macroaggressions, we're going to face them in different places wherever we are. I believe that we can take our positions of power and privilege and that we can withstand the blows that we have to take care of ourselves for. But I believe it is our obligation on this, for the time that we have to pick up on what our ancestors have done and just move it forward just a little bit, you know, not to, not to just sacrifice ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves. But I believe that the world needs us right now in the reimagining. Um, which isn't to say that I don't leave Zoom meetings and just cry in my room or feel so hurt, so hurt, personally hurt by things that are said, um, the way that I feel treated. I, I did a, a, a talk this summer called The Death of Equity. Mm. And <clears throat> I don't know if either of you guys saw it, but I did it. I was invited by uh, Americans for the Arts to, to give a talk about this moment. And really it was married to the question you asked, it was how hurt I was that this language that we love so much, that we believe in so much has been co-opted and is window dressing on all the same, can we swear on this? Yes, absolutely. Okay, I thought so, but I didn't want to. You know. <laughs> <laughs> to all the same bullshit that was there before, right? And all of these words, and Tracy, you are so good with words, like how you just breathe poetry. And bringing in quotes from other people that I want oh, to. And yes. others. It's, it's just incredible. Um, and then to watch our language be taken 
and then used to just sort of push the status quo forward, it is, it is, that's what I meant by we are witnessing the death of the term equity right now. But, you know, I gave that speech, I felt it in my heart, and then I just kept working because ultimately I'm a builder. I'm a builder. And I want to build something with each of you. I want to build with people who are listening. I believe that we have to get a little bit closer to somewhere else and that the blows we're withstanding are terrible. But compared to what others are experiencing, I feel like we can take care of ourselves and we can keep stepping or that we have to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I mean, yes to all of that. And I know the other morning by nine o'clock when I was having a call with someone on my team, um, I said, oh no, I've already called, I've already cried once today. And it was 9 a.m. It was 9 a.m. And that um, regularly having meetings where when you least expect it, it just happens spontaneously. And, and creating space for people to be able to do that and to be okay with it. Um, was talking to a group of uh, leaders through a Ford Foundation cohort and um, really saying, if you're someone who is used to leading more with your head than your heart, then I'm gonna say, you need to make a change, right? This idea of you're gonna need to make a change. And I'm saying that to them and I'm saying it to myself because I'm a business owner. So the competitiveness, someone says something about competitive. I'm like, do you know me? Of course I'm competitive. I mean, my God, <laughs> have you ever played a game with me? Um, and so this idea of being, you know, running a business as a black woman and the expectations that people have about the business or about you having to deal with that. Um, it, it's a lot, it's a lot. And, and when I reflect you know, on the fact that it's been 20 years and, and for 10 years, didn't really have any staff. I didn't plan on having staff at all, frankly. What I planned on doing was um, doing a little bit of consulting for a while and then making movies. <laughs> That's what I planned on doing. It just it didn't work out that way. I just, I'm, ha I'm happy to say though, just recently, I have signed on with an associate producer and I'm back to making some movies, um, trying to put myself and my interest forward in a way that, um, you know, as you, you have to be entrepreneur, you've got to take risk. You've got to move when things are moving and um, just saying it's okay that I take some time for myself and, and encouraging others to do that. I mean, that's the other thing I think people forget is that when you're leading, you're modeling particular behavior. And I can remember someone saying this to, uh, to me years ago. Well, you know, our, our uh, CEO comes in, you know, in the morning, works late at night. And I'm just wondering, is that what they expect us to do? And I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't. However, when I talked to the CEO, they had no understanding that people were even watching them and seeing them do that. And then I realized, because I, I try to get ahead of the week, as though that's really possible, I'm often working on Sundays. And I would send emails to staff that, until I said so, they thought I expected them to answer. And I said, no, I'm just trying to push them out. Oh my, you know, of course I don't expect you to respond on a Sunday night. They didn't know that. They didn't know that. And so just this, how do we model self-care? How do we, how do we do that in a way that um, really becomes part of, you know, we keep talking about culture and organizations. How do we do that in a way that it becomes part of the culture that it's okay to take care of yourself, particularly now because the work is extraordinarily harmful in ways that, again, the folks who are, are the ones that are harming you have no idea at all. They are completely oblivious to it. 
One one thing that I think, and you know, this is making me think a little bit of, and I just want to timestamp it and acknowledge the passing of Vartan Gregorian of um, Carnegie, of the Carnegie Corporation um, president, and speaking of philanthropy, great philanthropist, and and really someone that is credited with um, with in some ways saving the New York Public Library. But I remember when I when I moved into this position, it was pretty clear that uh, Mr. Gregorian was sussing me out, was checking me out, just making sure what, you know, what are, what, what are the hands uh, that uh, this, what hands is, 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 is the association in? But one thing that he did say that I think is really important is that he said, um, we were, it seemed like having meetings every month. And um, he, he said, uh, you know, people are going to try to put you in a box. Don't let them don't let them. He said many, many other things, but that that stands out for me. But to the point that you're making, um, Mary, when I think about attempts that I have made throughout my life, especially throughout my uh, professional career, to escape the box, it has always been really cultivating my creative and my community practice. And I always say to people, I'm not a big person to give advice, but in my opinion, um, in addition to uh, that bench that you need sometimes that the, you know, a therapist that you're always in order, um, you know, a loving, loving relationships, um, but, but also a, a creative or community practice. When I, when, whenever I look back at my career and think about whenever I've made moves, so to speak, as they say in, in careers, I can already, I can tell you usually in terms of creative practice, what I was working on or what questions I was asking. Right now, I've been I've been asking a lot of questions about Black agency and how Black people create. Oh, well, I've been asking questions about genius as well, and and what that looks like, um, unfiltered and unfettered. And when Black folk, in particular, are not asked to perform Blackness for others, what what that looks like. Because if you try to perform Blackness, then you really will be, as Ruby D used to say, kind of going to the sea with just a little teacup, right? The sea is huge, but you're just scooping out this little bit because that's kind of what people feel like you can, that's all they can take. And so that's all they want you to scoop up. So what I've been asking myself is what, especially knowing that there is also to this idea that in a non-linear world, um, time doubles on itself and, and, and that doubling multiple types of alternatives are, are, are possible, that we can create um, endings that look like beginnings, or we can ensure that um, the, the things that we do are for not only our survival, but as like Amanda Williams would say, our thrival, right? Because what I've been really interested in is, is, is this notion of agency, bliss, and joy. And, um, and what that looks like when it's unfiltered. And whenever I feel myself getting tight or being tightly wound in, that's when I create or have these conversations. And so I have to say that uh, having a, and, you, and we can do this, it, it, some people are not necessarily like artists, but they're, um, they're culturalists. 
right? Or, or their cultural producers or their witnesses. There's a lot of different positionalities, right? And so, or they're documenters or they are tellers. They tell you what happened when they saw it and, and it lives, right? And I was doing some of that with my brother right before we were about to log in. Um, my brother and I were talking about the fact that my grandfather, um, who was the oldest of five boys had to kind of do some things um, for their uh, mutual survival that really required that we allow people to have a wider berth in terms of how they move through society. And I'm coding some of this is coded. And if you can decode it, then decode it. But I'm going to keep it encoded so that it's a safe space. Because sometimes what we do is that we will talk about prison abolition and still be involved in punishment. And Foucault said that um, there is no glory in punishment. And so what I want to sort of say is that I want to create this space a lot of times in my work even that the people who don't seem like they have the answer, but really do, that they're given space and they're supported. And also what I would say in philanthropy that we shut up and listen and look at the folk ways of folks as they solution, right? As they solution. But what I'm trying to say is that I don't think that you can do any of the work that we're trying to do of change if you are not accountable in your creative or your community life. If you don't have that accountability, then what you're doing is sort of playing at this work because this work requires that you not have all the answers, right? And in a community practice, you will not have all the answers. When you think you're right, you'll be wrong. And in a creative practice, you do not have the, all the answers because the creative place is taking you to a space that you've never been before. That is what to create is all about. And so it kind of tests this notion of uh, even theories of change because multiple uh, multiple endings are possible in, in what I'm trying to suggest. You can't see us, but we're all shaking our heads. We're shaking our heads going, yes, yes, and yes. One of the things that you said, one of the many things that you've just said, this idea about where the, the ideas are coming from, as we know, if you don't look a particular way, right, if you don't show up a particular way, then those ideas are dismissed. So we're losing a lot. We're losing so much when we talk about creativity. Because again, we have been socialized in a particular way with that white supremacy, you know, white supremacy culture that it's got to be, first of all, you know, if it's not written down, then it's not valuable. It's got to be, it's got to look a certain way. You, have you been here for two years before you started offering up those suggestions? Because you couldn't possibly have any great ideas when you just got here. You don't know enough. Oh, have we heard that a few times? Yes, yes, Angelique. I mean, I just feel like that is, there's so much, I'm just sort of vibrating right now <laughs> through the conversation. Um, oh, there's so many gems in there, Tracy. Um, you know, you, you believe in prison abolition, but you are about punishment still. Um, yes. That remind, I'm reading, we do this till we free us and and it just reminds me of so many of the pearls of wisdom that are in there too, about what is the- That's Miriam. Um, it's on the New York uh, Times bestsellers list, which is phenomenal, uh, but that, that is someone who used to be right here in Chicago. Yeah. I know, I've never met her. Um, yeah. But, you know, I would love to see her in conversation with Tracy, actually. I think that would be something really powerful. I a little note of that. <laughs> right? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about a lot of this, about modeling a new world. How do we do that? Um, you know, even the things that you're mentioning, Mary, like I am in the old days, I was someone who was in the office at 7.30 in the morning and, you know, went to events many nights a week, but if not, would often be there till 7.30. Um, and that's because I am busy during the days. I meet with people. I, I like to be present with them. And then I've got to do work at some point. And so I was so compartmentalized too, that when I went home, I switched into mama mode and into wife mode and didn't want to sit down and do work. And so everything was in these different compartments. And I don't think that I realized the messages that are sent with how I had organized myself and how I potentially still do organize myself. So, you know, modeling a new world, I think that's really what's ahead of us um, with the work around racial justice, uh, with the work around the future of working and what that looks like and how we show up. I mean, I do think that that's kind of the exciting place that we are in. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I'm still sort of lost in the beauty of the things that Tracy had said, but I will say, you know, I, there's so many learnings that came from this year that we've uh, been through. I think one of the things um, is that we saw that philanthropy, what we call philanthropy, um, is first and foremost owned by community. You know, we watched mutual aid networks spring up overnight. We watched money being raised and then being um, shared through cash assistance. We saw food being, you know, and other resources just being shared around without an application process, without a theory of change and metrics and reporting. Like if we are not taking active notes <laughs> at this time um, and redefining really what philanthropy means, you know, then we are missing an opportunity. Um, I think the other thing is about how we work. What's interesting, and I don't have an answer on this, but um, I think this past year, um, there are a lot of lessons, but we were also reacting to a virus where we had to be in our homes. And so there are lessons to learn, but what's more interesting is gonna be how we approach this next period once people are vaccinated um, and people have choices of how they wanna work. Then that becomes really an interesting task. How do you as the leader of an organization balance what your employees want and need, what the sector wants from you, and what is right for an institution. And these are different things. And so we have to have this artistic spirit that Tracy's describing, this sort of inventor, entrepreneur, scientist, as we go into the next year to try and mess up, but try to sort of do a mixture of things. Um, there is a reason to be rooted at home and to cook dinners and to be there. There's a reason to be in a space with other people, shoulder to shoulder, ideating and coming up with thoughts. And then there's something uh, my friend, our friends, uh, Caitlin Strokosh posted this word on Facebook today. I wrote it down somewhere, stochosity. 
S-T-O-C-H-A-S-T-I-C-I-T-Y, which is this sort of, this, she says, a haphazard spontaneity that counters the weight of deliberateness and yields to unexpected magic. So that's the thing that happens when we just get to be in a room with each other, right? Like we are planning a meeting to plan a meeting to, to talk about a meeting and debrief the meeting. But like when we're walking to a place, what can happen in that moment is not something that we can necessarily get when we are in our own homes, when we've created pods, whether we mean it or not, of deliberateness, running into the unusual, that's a chemical reaction that we have to allow for. So I don't have an answer. I wanna do all of those things. And I think we can, but we just have to, you know, enter it with that artistic spirit and to figure it out. I just wanna say healing together because in many of our uh, traditional communities, we heal collectively. And so you're exactly right. I, I can't, I don't have more to say, but when you were saying that Angelique, I was just reminded of the fact that we come together, we heal together. We, we say something that requires almost like a communal uh, confession of I am not well. And that is received because that's the first step. And then we come together and we heal together. Uh, oh, there's so many things. But I, I, I think the, the other thing, though, is that we also have these moments where we go deep, we go within, we, we do the reflection, and that becomes a little bit more of a, it can be intimate, it can be smaller, it can be personal, right, or individual. But when we come together in larger groups, we tend to heal celebrate. And I'm starting to think about the workplace as being about these various modes, right? That we can get our work done, right? We can get our work done. And, and even if we, in, in these more intimate spaces, and even if we go back um, to the idea before the corporation, we know that uh, in communities, even in villages, people did their work in or close to their home, right? And, and then you go to the marketplace and then you sort of um, participate in this larger organism. And I'm seeing a return to that. So I don't really, for me, I see it as being hybrid is the way to go. That we will be able, because let's face it, we need to heal our homes. Okay, can I, is it okay to talk about that? Absolutely. That's why I see people of color, black and brown people in particular, turning to plants in the plant world. Somebody was saying, oh, everywhere you look, there's like a new plant store in Chicago and in all of our big cities and people are really into plants. And I said, do you know why that is? Because we know intuitively that we must heal in the natural world and we must reconcile with the natural world to coexist with the natural world, to learn the, the cycles of the natural world and our own cycles. But I think that um, I don't want to return to a place where we're not caring for home. I don't want to return to a place where we have to make a choice between family and our, and our beloveds and work. I want to be in a place where we are accountable 
um, to the sort of equilibrium that both kind of provide if we are really engaging and honoring both of them. So when you said that, Angelique, I was thinking about healing in addition to all those other things that we are called to be. And I'm not talking about this kind of thing, like a, sort of like the healing that, you know, we're now, we're, you know, the pendulum has swung again. And so we're, we're moving into being healers because we have to, we have to navigate this world and it requires that. But I'm also saying that I think that each of us are fundamentally called to be repairers. So let me break down healer and say to be repairers or to be recon reconcilers. And the higher up you are in the sort of management food chain, the more that responsibility, the more, the more obliged you are to do that work. Beautiful. I loved the piece about the plants. Uh, I can really relate to that as someone who has pretty consistently uh, killed most plants that have been given to us. I'm not joking, for the first time, and I didn't even think about this until you said it, Tracy. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where people have I'm like, oh, that's so beautiful. I'm so sorry you gave it to us. Um, but, but for the first time in over a year, and I think this is a, a really about healing at home, we have three living plants. I don't think that's a coincidence. That's not a coincidence. I mean, it just brings home exactly what you're saying, that healing at home and paying attention to home, absolutely. Have never had a plant. I'm telling you, it, it has just never happened. And it happened this past year, so... Anything can happen. Um, believe it or not, believe it or not, we have to do a little wrapping up. However, before we do that, I want to just, we asked you some questions in advance, and I want to just bring back a few of those responses. We asked, what have you learned in the, in the past year? And Angelique, um, tell us a little bit about how you've learned that you can grow a mean vegetable garden. Well, what it goes to what you said. I mean, yeah. I think that Thank there's you. something to, I traveled a week out of every month for as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm varsity at travel. I figured it all out. I can get in and out of different places. And, you know, um, and there are things that I miss desperately about traveling, you know, believe you me. Um, but there is something that happens when you are rooted in place and you are cooking dinner and you are handling things with your own hands in your home that just provides this like, return this, these dividends, right? And so growing a vegetable garden was something that I have done at different parts of my mother had done when I was younger. So it's in my bones. Um, but actually eating tomatoes, like right from a tomato plant. And you know what I found out this year, you all are gonna laugh at me, but lettuce has a taste. Oh, it does. When it's grown in your garden. I did not know that. I really didn't know it. I really didn't. Yeah. But, you know, having all kinds of herbs to season my food that I would just walk out and just fill up a little hat or a basket or a bucket with uh, all the things that I needed and then bring it inside. Um, but it requires that I'm rooted in self. And so in order to produce something from the earth, I have to be rooted there myself. And I haven't been able to generate things and keep them alive because that is a part of me that I never nourished. And that was something that I learned about myself. How am I rooted in self? But at the same time, and I just turned 50 and I, I you know. Congratulations. Yes, I just turned 50 years old uh, in February. And what I realized is that this thing of being completely rooted in physical self, I mean, I've started working out every morning 
which I'm not a worker outdoor, <laughs> but it was about mental health. You know, I mean, I call it like my happiness bubbles. After I work out, I get these like happiness bubbles that last me the whole day. And so how do I stay very connected to myself physically, to my home physically, but allow for what happened this last year where I became metaphysically connected to concepts, to people, to values, to goals. And that is my, that is my whole plan for the next decade is to stay rooted in self and metaphysically connected to ideas and to each other. That is what I learned and that's what I'm gonna keep learning. All right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, Tracy, you said, I've learned that it is up to us and us alone to close the gap between the life we dream about and the life we live. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and I think Angelica speaking to that, I think that, um, you know, the way that we're conditioned sometimes, especially, you know, uh, thinking of the, the world of work is that, you know, you work all of these years, you try to be of consequence, you try to move the needle, as Angelica said, and then if you're lucky, you live long enough to have a few years where you are your unadulterated self. And what I have learned is that it is really up to me and especially watching people get sick with COVID. My best friend, an author, an extraordinary, you know, I would say she helped to raise me from the age of 17, Nikki, you know, she's given me permission to use her name. Um, we were having a conversation over a week in which she, she contracted COVID and suddenly had that day where she could not breathe and went to the hospital. We were FaceTiming because we didn't know exactly what was gonna happen. And then um, I went to sleep at about 11 um, because she said, oh, they're getting ready to come in the room. I will um, you know, let you know what happens in the morning only to wake up um, in the middle of the night for her to say, I'm gonna be intubated at 11.29 PM and to not know whether or not she was gonna transition for seven weeks. She stayed, um, she was intubated. She was in an induced coma for seven weeks. And if there was anything that said to me that I have to, that we have to, um, we have to capture and integrate the life that we dream about into our everyday lives. It was that, and it is watching her struggle now. She's a long hauler with neuropathy and not being able to stand for long periods of time and still saying, coming out and saying, she had written a few books on um, in education. She is um, an educational theorist and an applied um, person, especially when it comes to math and uh, in the K through 12 um, space. Watching her be like really urgent now about writing and understanding that that is the thing that's gonna make her a citizen of space and time. But, but that's it, that's it for me. And so, and not only for me, but making sure that when my staff members come and say, I wanna do this, I'm saying, don't put it off. Don't put it off. Let's, let's try to figure out if we can make the time. And I'm starting to think about things like, how do we have, I'm not there yet, but how do we integrate sabbaticals? How do we integrate um, opportunities for people to, to work on their sort of life projects that they've been wanting to do, integrate that into work? So there's a lot, but I, it, so it's not just for myself, but I just want to be a part of a movement that says, let's not wait until the last three or five viable years of our life to, to try to ask ourselves, what do I want? And then go for it. Let's integrate that into our everyday lives. And for those of us who are in any kind of leadership position um, in a workspace, 
let's create that condition and that possibility um, in our organizations. Yes, yes, and yes, absolutely. And uh, that is something that I try to do now at Morton Group. I will generally ask, what do you want to do? You know, what, 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 we know what you've come here to do. However, what's, what do you want to do five years from now? Um, particularly for folks who are joining the team as they're coming out of college. I really generally have them, you know, in place for maybe five years. They're, they're learning lots. They're being promoted. And then I want them to go and be someplace else. Even if they want to come back, I want them to go and have some other experiences and then come back. And I'll just say now, because by the time this comes out, I will have told my, my team members that I'm going to take a sabbatical next year. Um, and um, I, I had this idea when I had two unplanned hours free, I kept wondering, okay, it's 20 years. Uh, we're going to do all these celebrating. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And um, I thought, why wouldn't I go on sabbatical? I just, it was, it seems like a simple idea. Uh, however, one that just had never really even occurred to me, I have to say, until we went through this year. Until we went through this year. I'm right? so excited for you, Mary. Yes, I'm so I am too. I'm just, and that changes everything. Just having that as something to look forward to in 2022 changes everything. It changes you know, I mean, there's some planning we have to do, but we were already doing some of that planning and um, it, yeah, it changes everything. And so, yes, this idea of work-life balance, I don't know if that's real, you know, the balance piece. However, I think the self-care piece, we, we've, got to, we've got to take on in a much more meaningful manner. And to your point, Tracy, how do we extend that to our teams? How do we make sure that they also understand that it, that this applies to them and we want to, we're all in this together. I mean, literally, and, you know, and so how do we make sure that people are taking care of themselves? And so just as I'm thinking about uh, sabbatical for myself, the, the next step was, how do I extend this to other people that have been with us for, you know, five years, for instance. Uh, and I'm, I am thrilled to think about that. I really am. And so, um, yes, these are the, the things that you've noted. Um, I just want to re reiterate this idea about learning how to be rooted physically and connected metaphysically from Angelique and your piece around uh, learning that it is up to us, uh, Tracy, and us alone to close the gap between the life we dream about and the life we live. As is often the case, the time has flown by. I just, and I was so looking forward to this conversation with both Thank of you. you. Um, and I'm looking forward to when we can do it in person again over a glass of wine. And that may not be too far away. I mean, really, right? Um, maybe later this year. Um, but in the meantime, let me just say how just extraordinary it is. Uh, how, how extraordinary it's been to spend some time with you. I actually feel a little forclumped even saying that. It's, it's a very special time. And I really appreciate you being here uh, more than I can say. I, I'm gonna leave it to Tracy to take us home, but I'll just say, um, I feel the same verklemption. <laughs> I've just made up that word, but I, I feel it. Um, and I've felt it throughout this conversation, honestly. Um, I just wanna say, I love you both. And mm -hmm. I admire you both. Oh. And I'm just so grateful to be on the planet with you. Can't wait to put my arms around each of you. I've learned so much from being in this conversation and from watching you guys. And I cheer you on as you know that and am your bench. So mm. thank you. Yeah. 
And I feel the same way. I think the last time we got together, I was like, oh, I feel some water by my eyes. I didn't know. And like in the midst of this conversation that came back, I love you very much. And I have such tremendous respect for you. And both of you, I have admired from afar and up close. Um, and I'm grateful for that. And I just am honored to be in this conversation. And I hope we will continue it uh, for selfish reasons so that we can also document how we change over time and the themes that arise. Um, but I, I'm grateful for the opportunity as always. Thank you, Mary, and, and, and for the platform. And Angelique, thank you for being such a light. And I, I wish that people could see us because we've been testifying and clapping and snapping and, and, uh, 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 and all of that. Um, and it happens each time. So thank you for this opportunity. I feel a lot more alive every time I speak with you all. Well, that is where we're going to leave it, friends. And I want to encourage all of you to close the gap between the life we dream about and the life we live. And until next time, this is Gathering Ground. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Gathering Ground on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And also, send us your questions about the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors. Anything to do with racial equity, access, diversity, and inclusion, we're happy to have those questions, and we will answer them on air. So send them to Mary at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. That's Mary at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. I would also encourage you to visit our website at mortongroup.com. We have lots of information and resources available as well as some of our executive searches. You'll be able to find out uh, what's happening not only here, but also across the country. 